Well, good morning. Try again. Good morning. There we go. Get your Bibles open to Mark chapter 5. If you do not have a Bible, uh, you can grab a black one in the seat back in front of you, beginning on page 891. And I want to thank the worship team for their uh, service to us this morning and um, grateful for their time. And if you're wondering why the door's open over there, if why it might feel a little humid in here today, it's because of really good news. Okay, after months and months and months, actually, let's be honest, years and years and years of talking and praying and planning and, and raising money, we're finally seeing some projects, some actual progress on our building project, and we're getting an entirely new HVAC system put in for this room. And so uh, it's going to be a much more comfortable summer uh, for us through here, uh, but today there's nothing. You can run up here if you want and change the thermostat and nothing will happen because there's nothing there, okay? It's all been taken out and it's being rebuilt. And the other thing was, if there's anybody who uh, doesn't like the sermon or offended by it, uh, you have to get up and you have to actually walk by me and walk out today, okay? You can't sneak out the back anymore, all right? I'm just kidding about that. You can sneak out the back anyone. Everybody does it every week, so... Uh, Mark chapter 5, uh, the one, th- one thing that I really do want to celebrate today, though, is an opportunity that we have uh, next week, um, and that's next Sunday night, uh, we'll have something called a new members class, which that name is just a little bit misleading, right? It, it is a class that you can become a member at, so it's called a new members class, but you don't have to commit to that to go to the class, and so um, it, it's a chance for you to meet the staff, uh, possibly meet some other leaders to, to hear about our, our background, our history, the vision where we believe the Lord is taking us, why we do the things that we do, and it's a chance for us to get to know you better. And so there's no, absolutely no requirement uh, to become a member at the end of it, right? If you just want to know more about the church you're attending, we recommend anybody attend the class. And one little wrinkle that we've thrown in this time that we're real excited about is we created a pathway for what we're calling college membership. Okay, we know we have a lot of college students that attend here and they kind of avoid uh, becoming members because like you go home every break and you go home all summer and all this. And it's just, it's just, it's kind of a weird way to find your way in, but we created a pathway for you to feel like you have a, uh, a church home when you're at college. And so uh, if you'd love to be a part of that, uh, we want you to, to come next Sunday night at six. And there's two ways you can do that. There's a physical sign-up sheet in the back today if you're interested in, in being a part of that. And uh, the reason we're asking you to RSVP is because we'll feed you some food. Uh, while you're there. And then uh, the other way is you can just go to our website, go to the Go Deeper page, and you can uh, send note to the office uh, that you'll be there. Um, So those are the two ways. But we'd love to have anybody who's interested to take part in that. But before we can get to next Sunday, we got to get this Sunday done. So I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we launch out in the sermon. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful uh, for each and every person who's here. We're grateful for the opportunity that we have, uh, we've already had, Lord, just to fellowship, to spend time together, to meet new people, and then to sing your praises. And so as we turn our attention to your word now, Lord, I ask that, uh, that your spirit would just move unhindered and unchecked to this place, uh, that you, that you uh, would, would ensure that your word would not return to you void, but it would accomplish the very purposes that you've set forth for it to accomplish today. Uh, we ask that you just push me out of the way, push the strategy of life out of the way, uh, that you take over this time and you get the glory from all of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the year is 2004, and it was a, a Friday afternoon. I was driving home uh, from college in, in Marion, Indiana, to Cloverdale, Indiana. And, and on that route, you have to go through Indianapolis. And so I was making my way through the city of Indianapolis. I was going around the outside on I-465. And I don't know if you've ever driven I-465 in Indy on a Friday afternoon or evening, but it's not a fun experience. 
okay? It is bumper-to-bumper cars every direction. It, it's, it's just miserable. I hated driving home on Fridays, but that was, I had class every other day, so I had to drive home on Fridays. And so I was kind of bracing myself, all right, this is just another trek through Indy. You can get through it. And I was on the west side of the city heading southbound, and I noticed, I was like, man, northbound lanes don't look as crowded today. You know, I mean, southbound, here we are, bumper to bumper like always, but the northbound, there's quite a bit of space between cars. And then I looked again, and it was even lighter cars. I looked again, and then there was no traffic at all, which is something I'd never seen before. I don't know if you've ever been driving down the interstate, and the other lanes are completely empty, but it kind of freaks you out. You're like, what is happening? Like, there's not a single car on I-465 northbound. I said, maybe I should start looking around. And so I started looking around. And that's when I noticed that every single overpass I went under, there were multiple cop cars parked on the overpass and police officers standing outside. And that's when I thought, what am I getting ready to drive into? Like, where, where am I heading? And then we drove, I drove a couple more miles. Again, no traffic. And then around the curve, I started seeing activity. And the first thing I saw were more than a dozen uh, police motorcycles coming around this curve. Behind them was a dozen or more police vehicles. Like, and then behind them was a, 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 a number of unmarked tan SUVs and vans with a bunch of guys in black suits in them. And I stopped asking what is going on, and I started asking, who in the world is this? Because somebody's getting the mother of all like police escorts, right? And that's when I saw after them came three identical jet black limousines, all with the seal of the President of the United States on the side. Apparently, if you watch the news, you would know that the president was going to be in Annapolis that day. I didn't do that, right? Um, and so I was like, well, he's in one of those three limousines. And then after it came the unmarked vans and then the police cars, everything was mirrored on the backside. And I came through that experience, and, you know, a couple miles later, all of a sudden there was traffic on 465 again, and all the cops were gone from the bridge. And I came out of that experience thinking like, man, the office of president is a bigger deal than I even thought. Right? I mean, it was a big deal. You see them on the news. But the amount of money and resources and energy and people, it goes into just transporting this guy. Right? The, the amount of investment goes in just protecting him. and just the, 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 the fact that a whole city shuts down for him just to go a few miles. And I realized just how enormous that position was and gave me more respect for the office. And also helped me understand just how much the government wastes money, Right. But we're going through the book of Mark as a church, and the reason why I'm so excited, I was so excited to study this book with you all, is because I wanted us, week in and week out, to be confronted with the reality of who Jesus is. As we go through Mark, we're discovering who he is and who he's not. We're discovering what following Jesus looks like and what it doesn't. And any time, I believe that any time you're confronted with the reality of the fullness of Jesus Christ, it's a very good thing for you and your soul. Because we need, whether, whether we've believed in him yet or not, we all need to, to, to grasp and to come to terms with who he is. We all need to grasp and come to terms with what he's capable of. We all need to grasp and come to terms with what he did or what he's still doing. We need to understand his character and how he views things. And then we need to formulate all that information so that those of us who are his disciples and are his apprentices can ask ourselves this question. That in the situation I find myself in, what would Jesus do if he were me? And two weeks ago, we watched as, as we closed out Mark 4, as the disciples wrestled with that very question, who is this? And who is Jesus after he calmed the storm? Last week for Easter, we jumped ahead to Mark 16, and then we saw uh, those three women at the tomb. Their, their entire worldview was shattered when Jesus rose from the dead. They weren't ready for it. 
And we're back in our regular study of Mark today, and we're starting chapter 5, and we're going to see this again and again and again. People being confronted with the reality of Jesus and being like, what am I dealing with here? And my prayer as we go through this chapter is simple, that the same would happen to us. That we would be reminded of and confronted by the, the, the scope and enormity of Jesus' power and authority. That we would be blown away at his mercy and his grace and compassion. And that that knowledge would transform the way that we view him, the way that we view ourselves, the way that we view others, and the way that we view our lives. And so I'm going to invite uh, Ruth Peelman up this morning. She's going to be reading for us uh, this, this uh, interesting, bizarre story here at the start of Mark chapter 5. She's going to be reading Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand with her to honor the reading of God's word? Good morning, Ruth. Good morning. <clears throat> They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerazines. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had been seen it described it to them, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the, De in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Thank you, Ruth. You guys can have a seat. Please keep your Bibles open there uh, to Mark 5. We're going to spend uh, today and next week uh, breaking down the sermon, or breaking down the story, because it's, it's a, a lengthier one. It's a bizarre one. Uh, it's it's why I like going through uh, books of the Bible verse by verse, because honestly, if I would just choose what I wanted, I would probably just skip this story, all right? But instead, we're going to spend a couple of weeks going through it and, and wrestling with some of the ramifications of it. And so this morning, what I want to do is just kind of break down uh, the story of the miracle together, right? And, and then at the end of it, I want to point out uh, what I think are some clear ramifications for us. Uh, but the first thing, since we uh, took a break uh, for Easter uh, last week, I want to make sure that we understand uh, the connection that this 
this has uh, to Mark chapter 4. And so I want to point out the, the question that's hanging over the chapter. So look with me at Mark 5 verse 1 again. Mark gives us a couple timestamps here. Mark 5 verse 1 says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes, as soon as he got out of the boat. That's another timestamp. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. Okay, so Mark did not write in chapters. Right, so Mark didn't get to, the, to uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 41. and was like, all right, now time for chapter 5. He just wrote his gospel. We added in the chapter breaks later. So for Mark, there is no break in this story. None whatsoever. And, and we can see that from the timestamps. Number 1, or verse 1, they come to the other side of the sea. What are they doing at the end of chapter 4? They're sailing across the Sea of Galilee. All right, number two, as soon as he gets out of the boat. So this is a continuation of the day in the life of Jesus that Mark covered in Mark chapter 4. And if you recall, right, we, we spent a few weeks in it, but Mark 4 is all one day in the life of Jesus. And it's all right there around the Sea of Galilee. He starts by teaching this really large crowd uh, by the Sea of Galilee. He has to get in a boat and push out a little from the shore and create this like amphitheater feel. And then he dismisses the crowd and comes back to the shore and he huddles up with his disciples. And he spends some time answering their questions about some parables he taught, and then he gives them some exclusive teaching. And then in in chapter 4, verse 35, he tells them to get into the boats, and they're going to cross the Sea of Galilee. And that is when a violent, they're crossing the sea, and when a violent, terrifying storm comes up, right, and water is crashing the boat, and everybody thinks they're going to die, except for Jesus, who's taking a nap during the whole thing. And they come to Jesus, they wake him up and say, Lord, don't you care? Like, don't you care, teacher, that we're about to die? And Jesus just stands up and he rebukes the storm and he just says, silence, be still. And the wind dies down and the waves die down and everything is calmed immediately. And chapter four ends with his disciples in complete and utter shock. And they're actually afraid, Mark tells us. And they ask themselves the question that is hanging over this entire story in Mark chapter 5. Look at, the, look at Mark 4 verse 41. They were terrified and asked one another, who then is this? The question that hangs over all of chapter 5 is who is this? Just like last week, we looked at the women at the tomb, and the disciples thought they had a high view of Jesus, but it wasn't even close to who he was. They didn't know he had this level of power. They didn't know that all of nature would just bow to his verbal command. And what else they don't know is this, is that the lesson isn't over yet. Jesus isn't done revealing his power. They're still reeling. They're still grappling with the idea that he has authority over the natural world. Now he's going to get out of the boat, and they're going to see that he has authority over the supernatural and the spiritual world as well. Who is this? This is Jesus, and he's bigger, and he's better, and he's more powerful and more authoritative than, than even his disciples thought. And I love the detail, Mark says that in verse 2, that as soon as he gets out of the boat, there's a man who comes up to him. This is why he had to take a nap, by the way. Because there were times where it just did not stop for Jesus. Think of, think of all that he'd done in that day. And now as soon as he gets out of the boat, there's more coming for him. You see, one of the, I think one of the greatest failings of our day is just how willingly we make ourselves busy. We overfill our lives. We overcommit ourselves and our families. And then we wear it as a badge as if it's something to be proud of. When in reality, it's hurting us far more than we think. It's, it's killing our connection to God and killing our connection to each other. But, but that said, there, are, there will always be seasons, there will always be days when life is overwhelming, 
right, where, where somebody gets sick or all your children need you in a unique way or something unplanned, an interruption in life comes up or there are multiple people need help and you feel like the Lord is telling you to, to serve them. And where even those who try to follow the rhythms of Jesus, right, that you practice uh, solitude and you observe a Sabbath and you, you attempt to never be in a hurry and you try to be fully present everywhere you're at, even with those goals in life, there's going to be days, there's going to be times where it just doesn't stop because people have needs in this life. But just know the next time that you're there that Jesus has been there. He's felt that. And, and the best thing to do is just try to emulate what he did, to be fully present, to be compassionate to whoever needs you. And then whenever you can, get the rest and get the nap and get the solitude because he needed it and so do we. This man comes running up to Jesus and he wasn't just any normal guy, right? Mark describes what his life is like at this point. Look at verse 3. It says, he lived in the tombs. No one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains and had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Do not skip over those details. Right? In this story, what we get here with this man is we, we get to see clearly the differences between the two kingdoms. Where the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness could not be more different. But the kingdom of God, which Jesus is establishing, it wants nothing more than to bring freedom and salvation and the fullness of life. The kingdom of darkness wants to control and ruin every aspect of your life and who you are. And in this man in Mark 5, we see a picture of what Satan's work in someone's life can look like if it's, if it's let us unchecked. First Peter 5 tells us, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. There are two kingdoms that are at war. And they want your heart and they want your soul and they want your life, but only one of them is for you. The Bible could not be clear on this. Satan is very real, and he stands opposed to everything that God has made. He wants to destroy everything that God has made, and he knows that the prize of creation is humanity. As Genesis 1 says, we've been made, male and female have been made in the image of God. We bear the markers of our creator. And so it's his goal to lead someone away from how God made them. It's his goal to get them as far away from God's design as you can see, and you can see his work in our world today so clearly. You can see it here in Mark 5. This man has been created, like all humans, to be in community with other people. And he's living in total isolation among the tombs. There's no one who can contain him. There's no one who can help him. There's no one who can have any kind of relationship with him. He was created to love others, and he attacks anyone who passes by. We've been created to, to, to use God's gift in our lives, to, to, to use our intelligence and creativity to make the world a better place and to bring glory to God. And he lies in a cave just screaming out nonsense all the time. He bears in his body the image of God and he constantly is cutting himself. So I don't know his background. We don't even know his name. We don't know what the backstory is here. But at some point in his life, he invited Satan's work. Through the portal of sin, he gave what the Bible describes, he gave the devil a foothold. Do you know the Bible commanded not to give the devil a foothold? This is why. Because from that base, the kingdom of darkness went to work. And they're greedy. 
It won't stop thirsting for more and more control over your life. This man is an example of just how far our sinful natures can take us. He's an object lesson of the depravity of human beings. He shows us how the effect of sin in our lives is always progressive. It always wants more. The only way to break the progressive increasing hold of sin over our lives is through repentance. It's to identify them, confess them to God, turn away from them, ask for his, his, his assistance and resist them, and then experiencing the goodness and wondrousness of his grace for giving us. That's why God gave us that system, right? Without the practice of confession and repentance, we'd all be stuck in the progression of sin, taking over our natures more and more and more. Now, people had tried to help this man, especially early on. They all failed. And they tried to contain him, putting shackles and chains on him, and that failed. And then they tried to isolate him, and that has failed mostly. But notice the difference in Jesus' response. He's not afraid of this man. He doesn't send him off. He's not threatened by him. Instead, he talks to him. He has compassion for him. He sees him for what he is. He's a soul with immense value. He's an image bearer who's been stolen by the enemy. And then he's going to have this really bizarre conversation, and then there's a miracle to come in which Jesus will showcase his supremacy over the spiritual world. Jesus launches into this conversation with this man, but it turns out, and I don't even know how this all works, by the way, But it turns out he's not talking to the man, is he? He's talking to these evil spirits that have overtaken and oppressed this man. And if this is all new to you and this is all bizarre to you, like, man, this is really weird, I don't want you to feel badly about it because it is weird. It is bizarre. And we should never, ever feel comfortable or okay with the presence of or work of or influence of the kingdom of darkness. It'd be good to be creeped out a little by it. But what you need to know to understand this conversation is simple. Number one, that there are two kingdoms at war and they are fighting for the hearts and souls of men and women and this battle raged long before we came. But number two, an important context to understand this conversation is that both kingdoms know who's going to win. Satan, the leader, and his demonic servants all know who Jesus is because there's no one you know better than your enemy. And they all know a time is coming in which he's going to destroy them forever. 1 John 3 says the Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. But this is why as we go through Mark, and if you, read, if you read Matthew, Luke, and John, you'd see the same thing in the Gospels. It's always the demons who are the first to declare Jesus' actual true identity in the Gospels. Remember, we're coming off the, the, the miracle of the storm, right? The disciples in Mark 5, they're wrestling with who Jesus is. They've asked one another. The, the answer hasn't come to them yet. But the demons aren't wrestling with his identity at all. They know fully who he is. Look at verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. That's an incredible detail. And he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you before God, do not torment me. For he had told him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name, he asked him. My name is Legion, he answered them, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. I I told you the conversation was weird, okay? But as we unpack this, let's remember two things. The question hanging over this chapter that the disciples are still wrestling with is, who is Jesus exactly? And number two, the demons, the demonic spirits, they're enemies of Jesus, And so any submission, any obedience, any recognition you see here, it's not from a willing place. 
They don't want to do it. And just in that alone, you see Jesus' immense power and authority. First, there's this man who cannot be shackled. He cannot be bound by chains. He breaks through all of them, and he comes, and what does he do before Jesus? He bows. But the demons were bowing in sheer dread. They were completely subdued in front of their judge. Then they refer to Jesus, the son of the most high God. Now, the term most high God is an interesting one. It's, it's, we see it in the Old Testament only used by Gentiles. It's not how the Jews refer to Yahweh. It's only used by Gentiles. And it's only used by Gentiles when they recognized, they saw something that showed them that the God of the Israelites was superior and had authority over every other God and every other religion. They would recall him the most high God. Most high God is a recognition of there being one true God, one true Lord of all lords. And they give Jesus this title. But verse 7 says that they cried out first. The Greek word there is to shriek in terror. You can tell it pains them to give them this title. But they're forced to. And so they recognize Jesus' authority about before him. They confess his authority. And then they fear it. I beg you, do not torment me. And lastly, they obey him. Verse 11, a large herd of pigs was there feeding the hillside. The demons begged him, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. Yes, a weird story got even weirder. Okay, but more on that in a second. Please don't miss this, especially with the questions hanging over the chapter. There's one person in control the entire time. Jesus makes the demon identify himself and reveal how many there actually are. The word legion, right? A legion would be 6,000 Roman soldiers. And so that term was used in that day and in that area as a slang just to represent there's a whole lot. Right? It just meant a really large number. And so part of why Jesus made them identify themselves is because we can read today, but think about it. His disciples could hear in the moment that this man is not controlled by a single evil spirit, right? But countless ones. And yet Jesus is not afraid of them. They're afraid of him. Now, can you imagine watching all this unfold after, just minutes before you saw him calm a storm in the sea? I mean, I think the reason that we have no record of disciples saying anything here is because they know to shut up. They don't have any idea what's going on. They're really, they're just going to be like, we're going to sit back and we're just going to watch this. And so then the question is this, why did Jesus send demonic spirits into pigs? Right, remember the questions hanging on the entire story is who is this? And Jesus is revealing to those who are there just who he is. And he's going to demonstrate the extent of his power over the kingdom of darkness. He wasn't able to just cast out single demons. He had authority with just his word to cast out an entire legion of them. And he sent them into something nearby so that everyone there, right, the man, the disciples, the herdsmen, could see tangible, physical evidence that they were indeed gone and cast into something else. And this scene had to be terrifying. Have you ever heard a pig squeal? It's one of the most unsettling noises you could ever hear. Think of 2,000 of them. Right, all squealing around, and then they stampede into water and, and thrash around and drown themselves. The point is this, right? In mere moments after being cast out, they were able to occupy and destroy an entire herd of animals, which showcases just how powerful and just how destructive a legion of demons is. And yet they were afraid of Jesus and his power. 
Now, next week, Adam is going to preach through the different reactions to this, right? But I can't not mention this detail. Look at verse 15. It says, they came to Jesus and they saw the man who had been demon-possessed. He was sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. That's what Jesus does. That's what only he can do. He destroys the work of Satan in people's lives. He breaks the chains. He sets us free from oppression. The man is redeemed. He's restored. He's rescued. He's in his right mind. He's back to who he was created to be. The effect of Jesus on someone's life is the exact opposite of the effect of the kingdom of darkness. Now, there are enough uh, unique and bizarre and peculiar details of this story that we could really get lost in the weeds today. We could spend our time debating uh, just, just a whole bunch of stuff that we won't ever know the answers to because the spiritual realm is beyond us. In fact, I'm, I'm begging you in groups not to spend your whole group time doing that this week. Instead, to end our time today, I want to talk about the ramifications of this story and what it reveals for us because I think there are clear ones that are quite impactful. And the first one is this, that Jesus' sovereign power has no end. Remember the disciples' question at the end of chapter four that hangs over all this? Who then is this? They ask that question in reaction to the revelation that the natural world obeys Jesus. Now, immediately after, they get to see that the spiritual world does too. And so they're learning in real time what the Bible makes clear, that there is nowhere that Jesus Christ does not have authority over. Listen to Colossians 1. It's about Christ. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for everything, it's inclusive language, right? Everything was created by him in heaven, on earth, the visible and the invisible, the, the physical, the natural, and the supernatural. Right? Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. You know what that, you know what that passage tells you? Whatever your thoughts are of Jesus, they're, they're too small. Whatever your view of him is, it's not big enough. No matter how much authority you think you've granted him, he deserves and has even more. And the ramifications of this are profound. One is, is that you will not be able to avoid him. You might have been living and operating as if, as if Jesus is something you could set to the side and ignore. But that's not an option that lays before you. Because there's a day coming, Philippians 2 tells us, where, where he's going to be revealed to all and every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. At the end of your life, he will be your judge. And so this modern idea that you can take some safe middle ground with him you can respect him and say he's admirable and he's something that we should, he's an example for us, but otherwise kind of ignore him and push him aside. The Bible is clear. He is either your cornerstone or he's your stumbling block. There's no middle. He's the one that you put all your faith in and all your trust in. He's the foundation of your hope and your life. He's everything that you're banking on for eternity or he's the one that you will stumble over on your way to eternal damnation. There is no middle ground because you cannot ignore the most high God. You cannot ignore the one who created everything. You cannot ignore the one who holds all things together. And secondly, there's nothing that's happening to you right now that is outside of his love and his scope and his authority. I'm sure in a room this size that there are people here facing a situation that looks quite bleak today. 
When it might feel like you, you've, you've looked at this in every angle and it just doesn't look like God's at work. Or if he is, at least you can't see it. And maybe others have tried to help you and they've failed. They haven't been able to. Maybe you tried every solution that you could come up with and nothing has made it better and you have no answers. Well, take heart. There's nothing beyond him. There's nothing bigger than him. There's nothing more powerful than him. So just surrender and submit the situation to him. Plead with him in prayer to, to, to move and to act in the meantime to sustain you. There is no need that he cannot provide. There is no relationship he cannot restore. There is no one who's too far gone. No matter how big the mountain in front of you, no matter how violent the storm, it is not beyond him. And that gets us to our second ramification, which is that no one is beyond the reach of his grace. There is no doubt in my mind that there were people in that region who had written this man off. There are a few who tried to help early on, right? But at this point, they thought there was nothing that could be done. And if you asked them and they were truly honest, my guess is they wished that he would either just leave the region or just die because they would feel a whole lot safer and a whole lot more comfortable. But you know what nobody thought? Nobody thought he'd get better. And then came Jesus. New Testament is full of stories of people being reached by the power and gospel of Jesus that we would have labeled unreachable. Saul of Tarsus was persecuting the church and orchestrating the death and imprisonment of Jesus' followers. He ended up writing most of the books in the New Testament. James is the half-brother of Jesus, right? And, and then we read in the Gospels, he refused to believe in Jesus. In fact, took part in mocking him and trying to stop him. He ends up writing a book of the New Testament in which he opens it by calling his brother the son of God. Those of you brothers, think about that, right? He then identifies himself as a slave of Jesus, his own brother. And then he suffered for the faith. There's a group of Pharisees. This is my favorite. The Pharisees, the same one as we go through Mark, we're going to see them make Jesus' life miserable again and again and again. The same group who orchestrated his death. We find them in the early church in Acts because after the resurrection, the gospel reached them and they believed in him. God has again and again and again and again proved there is no one beyond the reach of his grace or the power of his son's cross. And so don't ever write somebody off. Don't ever believe that you are too far, Cotton, because there is nothing that you or anyone has done that is more powerful and more precious than God's son dying on the cross for you. So do not stop praying. Do not stop sharing. Do not stop hoping. Do not stop loving And if you've never believed in him, stop believing the lie that you're beyond his grace because you're not. And the third ramification that we need to wrestle with, and it's one I understand is tricky to communicate, so if you have questions after, please ask me. But there is a belief that saves and a belief that doesn't. I need to point this out because here in Mark 5, we see clearly the demons recognize who Jesus was. They recognized his authority. They confessed it, right? They, they proclaimed it. They feared who he was. And then when he told them to do, do something, they immediately obeyed him, which is a far better resume than I have on most days. And they will still spend all eternity in hell because their belief was not a saving belief. Their faith was not a saving faith. And James touches on this in his letter in the New Testament. He says, you believe that God is one. Good. That good is sarcastic, by the way. Good, because even the demons believe and they shudder. 
James says this, this mental recognition that there is God, right, you're right on par with the demons, which should tell you you're not in a very good place. Now, it's true. We need to understand this. It's true that because Jesus did all the work for us on the cross and his resurrection, all we have to do is believe to be saved. The Bible makes that argument quite clearly. John three sixteen: whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. John 20, I've written these things so that you may believe, and by believing, you may have life in his name. Acts 16, Paul and Silas to the jailer, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That argument is clear in the scriptures. But you see, we have to ask what that belief entails. The belief that a saving belief goes beyond an intellectual recognition. It's beyond a mental recognition of who Jesus is. Saving belief always includes faith which means that Bible knowledge and church attendance and knowing the right answers, these things are not enough. Belief that saves is a belief not just that Jesus is God, but also that he's better than whatever it is we're tempted to cling to. There are people who believe that God is real and Jesus is real, but what they don't believe is that he's better than what it is they love. Whether it's a way of life a sin they, they treasure, the idea of control, a refusal to surrender to any kind of authority, including his, an idol in their life or something else. They believe that their kingdom is better than his, that their God is better than him, and they are desperately, desperately wrong. There isn't an issue of believing in the head, but of surrendering in the heart. And how sad would it be for someone to sit in church for weeks and months and years and to gain head knowledge of God's word and learn all about Jesus' power and authority and to know their need of saving and delivering from hell and still choose a lesser God and a lesser good and cling to it in their hearts and never fully trust their life and their soul and eternity to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He paid the price for your sins in full on the cross and rose from the dead to offer you eternal life and he will fully forgive you and fully adopt you and grant you eternal life in heaven if you put your belief and your faith and your trust in him. But you must believe he is who he said he is. You must trust that he will indeed save you and forgive you and have the faith that he is better than whatever it is you're relying on before him. Jesus' sovereign power has no end. There is, there is no one beyond the reach of his grace, and he is worth believing and trusting everything to. And so may we all depart from this place today with him securely in place as our cornerstone. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for stories in your word that even though they may be bizarre, a little weird, or outside of things that maybe I've experienced in life, still greatly showcase the power, the authority, the compassion, the goodness, the love, and the greatness of Jesus. And I pray more than anything else, we'd be confronted by him this morning. And Lord, if there's anybody, there's anybody in this room, anybody who will be in this room, anybody who's listening now, who up to this point, their trust has been in something other than Jesus. They're looking to find their satisfaction. They're looking to find their joy and their fulfillment in something other than him. They're trusting in their ability, in their righteousness, their goodness, something lesser than him, God. Would you reveal to them their need for saving faith today? That their trust needs to be in Jesus and in Jesus alone, and he will forgive them. 
He will restore them. He will redeem them completely and he'll bring them home forever to be with him. God, may today be their day of salvation. And then, Lord, for anybody who's going through a storm now, anybody who's, who's facing a mountain or scenario situation that just feels bigger than them because it is, that all their solutions haven't worked, all the efforts of mankind on their behalf haven't worked, the, the, the relationship is still broken, the need is still there, the addiction p- persists, God, whatever it is, Lord, would we, would we be struck by the reality that's not bigger than you? It's not beyond your capability. It's not beyond your grace. It's not beyond your love. And around this room, we'll be laying those scenarios down at your feet, asking you to work, asking you to move, asking you to redeem and restore. And in the meantime, sustain us as you work in your time and your way. We ask all this in the powerful and awesome name of Jesus. Amen. And before you're dismissed today, we're going to give you a couple minutes to spend some time with the Lord, wrestling with anything he may have said to you today, anything he may have put in your heart, anything he might be convicting you of or encouraging you with. Take it to him in prayer now. There's some guidance on the screens if you need it, but this is your time with him. Please take advantage of it.